Hey, I'm Zach Shaw. And I'm David Shen. Welcome to Square One, the show about local organizing in DC. All right, well, welcome to those of you joining us for the first time. Uh, for episode two, we're focusing on organizing for immigrant rights in DC and the fight to keep the district a sanctuary city. Uh, immigrants make, uh, make up about 25% of the district's population coming from all around the globe. Um, they're our neighbors, our coworkers, our teachers, and our friends. Uh, they help drive the regional economy and provide the DMV with unique cultural, religious, and ethnic diversity. Uh, especially since the election of Donald Trump, these communities have come under attack. And with the district so reliant on federal funding, it's put the local government in a tough position and forced local advocates uh, for sanctuary to get more aggressive in the fight for their rights. So to help illuminate this issue, we recorded two interviews for today's episode. Um, in the second half of the show, we'll have a discussion with some badass organizers from Many Languages, One Voice. Uh, but first, we talked with uh, Selena Marquez, a third-year law student at GW studying immigration law. Uh, Selena, Selena works at the Jacob Burns Community Legal Aid Clinic at GW, where she helps provide immigrants with the legal support that can be really difficult to get sometimes. And uh, we spoke at Mark's Cafe in Mount Pleasant uh, a few weeks ago before a lot of these... Um, before some of the big court decisions were made regarding President Trump's executive orders. And uh, we spoke a lot about the, <clears throat> the immigration system at large and what people need to know about it. So Yeah, and, and what it's like to live um, kind of that precarious lifestyle as an immigrant. Exactly. Um, uh, so without much further ado, here's my talk with Selena. I actually had no idea that I was interested in immigration law. Uh, I'm from a border town in Texas, uh, and I grew up going to Mexico every weekend to visit my grandparents. Uh, and in a lot of ways, taking immigration and sort of the benefits that I had as a U.S. citizen for granted, because every weekend I would just, you know, drive 15 minutes, visit my grandparents, and come back. Um, and that wasn't unusual to me because it was just something that I'd always done and something that was very typical for the area that I lived in. Uh, it's also 98% Hispanic, so I didn't feel like immigration was unusual. Um, and I, it was just a part of life, really. Um, and when I got to law school, uh, I met a lot of people, a lot of professors even, who were like, oh, so you're interested in immigration? And I was like, I never really thought about it. And for a long time, I actually kind of pushed back at the idea because I felt like I was being sort of pigeonholed into something that I didn't really have much of an opinion about. Um, and after my first summer, I went home to Texas to uh, work at Legal Aid, uh, which gives uh, free legal re representation to indigent uh, communities in the area. And I was doing housing work, uh, but because I'm bilingual and from the area and was sort of able to relate to the clients that come to the office seeking immigration help, they gave me some immigration cases, uh, and I really enjoyed the work. For someone who's never inter interacted with the United States immigration system, yes. what are the like what are the key things that they need to know if they say they care about immigrants, they care about helping immigrants? Like, what do they need to understand about this system, okay. and what's to in order to help these to help people who are currently caught who are caught in the gears of the uh, of this uh, of this process? Yeah. So I think one of the very surprising things that I've learned since, I guess, the whole administration has taken place 
the new administration, sorry, is taking place, is that people have a lot of erroneous beliefs about the immigration system. And I mean, it's a very convoluted system as well. Like, it's comparable to the tax code, which is also like very complicated. Uh, and one thing that I've heard a lot recently is like, why can't they just do it, quote unquote, the right way? And that is a difficult thing to ask of somebody who, I mean, it has to sort of navigate this world that is really hard to do if you don't have the help of a lawyer and if English is not your first language, especially. Um, there are so many types of visas, there's so many ways that you could come to this country um, and have legal status. There's tons of forms of relief. Um, lots of them can take, you know, up to years to resolve in the immigration courts. Um, and I think it's important to keep in mind that um, the people that come here uh, undocumented are fleeing like war-ravaged countries, impoverished countries, countries that are just completely oppressive. Uh, and they're coming here and they're leaving their lives behind. Uh, and it, it, wanting to offer support is also having to, I mean, understanding that it's a difficult system to navigate and it's not easy to just be like, I'm going to go get a lawyer to do, you know, my paperwork or whatever to do things legally because it can take years and it can be very expensive and it, your yeah. access to resources can be limited. So what's the difference between immigrants and refugees? So, I mean, refugees are a type of immigrant okay. um, and they kind of fall under the umbrella of like an immigrant. I think that it's important to keep in mind that there is a distinction because refugees have gone through a very long process to um, obtain what they need to come to this country for safety. And um, it sort of gets lumped in with this idea that there's like people who are here undocumented and aren't paying taxes and all these other like misconceptions. Um, that sort of give a bad name to the whole of immigration because everyone's just like uh, mislabeling things and getting things confused and that's just not, it's not really how it works necessarily. Speaking of labels, what does it mean to be undocumented? Like what okay. is that just straight up? So going back to being somebody with legal status, it, it's sort of just synonymous to that. If you're undocumented, unfortunately, it means that you don't have um, the legal paperwork necessary to be um, in the United States legally. You said people who are undocumented live in fear. Yes. What are they afraid of in very like, tangible terms? Uh, afraid of being deported, afraid of having to be sent back to this country that they fought really hard to get away from, uh, afraid of having started a life here and started building something for themselves and then having it all taken away from them because um, the Department of Homeland Security and the courts are ruling that they need to go back to, you know, these countries that aren't serving them uh, fairly. So. Can you give some examples from people you've worked in, in some cases you've worked in in the clinic, uh, sure. people who are going through this process? Yes, definitely. Um, so I can give an example of a, one asylum case that I'm working on and one cancellation case that I'm working on. 
Um, the asylum case is a young boy who came to the clinic. He was 17 years old. And I actually was the one to answer his phone call when he called and said that he was uh, needing a lawyer for court uh, and was afraid of going back to his country of El Salvador because he was being threatened by gang members. Um, and I brought him in for an intake interview and he had some documentation of um, a police report that he had filed, which is kind of unusual um, because in Central American countries, the government's not usually willing to cooperate. But he had a police report that his mother had filed on his behalf. Um, and he had the letters that the gang members wrote with all of their threats on there. Um, his stepfather was a janitor at a local police station and that's sort of where all of the threats were stemming from because they thought that he was like in cahoots with the police department and uh, ratting them out so they started to threaten him and his brother and he decided to flee. Uh, called the clinic and became a client of the clinics and then we were doing his whole court um, proceedings and in court um, the judge administratively closed his case and it complicated things a little because it moved to a different um, a different office. Um, another case that I'm working on is a cancellation of removal case and the client is not a legal permanent resident but he's been here since the year 2000 and now he has three kids that are all United States citizens and I'm actually doing his merits hearing on March 30th to hopefully get the judge to rule that he's able to stay in the country. So what role does the executive branch and the, the Trump administration mm -hmm. play in uh, having control over these, over these proceedings? Um, it's interesting because I don't think anybody really knows yet um, how it's going to play out. Um, I have spoken to my professors, um, one of who's a judge, and we don't really, un like, it's not clear yet, like, how it's going to, like, come about or, like, what is actually going to take place. Um, because, I mean, the one executive order that banned um, individuals coming from those seven countries with the majority of them being um, Muslim, I mean, we saw at the airports that they weren't able to come into the airport, um, and I mean, that was disastrous. But in terms of the other executive orders, we're not really sure yet like how it's going to be enforced. Other than the airports, un unfortunately, there were, I mean, a bunch of raids over the last couple of days. Um, but I'm not sure like where, I'm not sure that the raids were necessarily part of the executive order or I think it was but are those just... are those raids those raids are by federal agents yes who are who take orders from who, who are who exist in the chain of command that the president sits at the top of yes I'm not sure though who gave them the orders um, necessarily because these raids were happening even during the Obama administration like towards the end there there were like factories that were being raided um, so I'm not, I don't know that this is too different from what was occurring during the Obama administration. Um, I think that just because of the rhetoric that's been, um, 
in the news for the last couple of months, it just feels a little bit scarier. Um, but I, I don't know that we have yet to see an increase in numbers necessarily of people who are being deported as um, a consequence of the executive orders. Do you think the mass protests about these actions, the protests at the airport and the Day Without Immigrants that mm -hmm. happened yesterday, do you think those matter? Do you think those help towards supporting undocumented people? Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, especially, I was really proud of what was um, happening at the airports and lawyers just showing up with like their laptops and their printers and getting ready to just like help whoever uh, needed it. And there was a lot of lawyers who I don't think had much immigration training either, but were just at the forefront trying to help. And I think that that was very important um, as a show of solidarity, um, as a show of resistance. Um, I, one of my former bosses was at the airport with signs and trying to help people. Um, and I, I absolutely do think that that was um, incredibly important. And I think, is it two days ago, there was a march just down this street. Um, and that, to me, was very emotional. Um, because, as you both do, like, we live in this community and it's like primarily immigrant. Um, from Central America and to see them sort of feel like they had an outlet to stand up for their rights as opposed to just sort of like go about their days like they usually do with their head down um, and trying to just like do the work that they need to survive, uh, that was really empowering. Um, especially A Day Without Immigrants was important to me because we were able to see big companies sort of offer their support for them. A friend of mine uh, works at Sweetgreen as part of their legal department and she was explaining to me that they fought really hard to get all of their employees um, pay for the day that they could take off to either protest or to volunteer at other organizations. And I think that it's gotten a lot of people who before didn't care about, or not that they didn't care, but didn't think about immigration before, to understand that, I mean, the people that we work with on a daily basis are affected by it, where their family members are affected by it. Um, so yeah, I do, I do think that these demonstrations are important and I, I hope that they continue and I hope that they continue to get support as well, um, especially from, you know, demographics who aren't usually a part of the fight.
just heard a segment from the song Cathedral by the local DC band Flavor Waster. You can find more about Flavor Waster and their music in our show notes. So for our second interview today, uh, we spoke with two organizers from Many Languages, One Voice. Yasmin Zara is a community organizer and Paula Perez is an organizer in training and an alumna of the youth organizing program at MLove. MLove is a group located in Mount Pleasant, uh, but working to build power in immigrant communities throughout D.C. Um, they've been very active since the election in applying political pressure locally to keep the district a sanctuary city uh, and played a big role in the successful Day Without Immigrants strike uh, and protests in February. Yasmin and Paula do a much better job of explaining their work and their background as organizers um, than I can, so uh, here's our conversation. Many Languages, One Voice is a deep-rooted, multi-ethnic, multi-generational uh, organization in D.C. We like to center the leadership of folks who are uh, affected communities, affected immigrant communities, um, longtime D.C. residents. We build local immigrant power here in D.C. Um, and we have three different wings of our work. Our first is our, uh, our workers' committee. Uh, the Committee on Labor, Solidarity, and Worker Power is their name. <laughs> Great name. Um, and they uh, are primarily Latinx, uh, low-income workers, um, you know, ensuring that organizing to ensure that uh, DC is a place where folks aren't getting fired unjustly, where workers on the ground know about their benefits and their rights on the job. Um, our second wing is our SMART program, um, Student Multi-Ethnic Action Research Team is what it stands for. Um, and they are primarily uh, immigrant high school youth, um, organizing to ensure that uh, the school system is a safe place for immigrants. There have been cases where you know, uh, immigrant youth have been coming across you know, uh, security guards you know, on their way to school and, and just getting harassed and um, this school-to-prison pipeline that's very apparent in our D.C. school system. Um, so, so organizing to make sure it's a safe place for them. And then our D.C. Immigrant Organizing Center is actually our newest project, and um, it's a group of, of immigrants working to make sure that D.C. is like a true sanctuary city. What is your approach to trying to build community power? Mm -hmm. um, and how, how do you go about organizing um, young people through other generations in the community? Yeah, um, so we, uh, we deeply believe in the most affected communities actually leading the charge. So that's, that's a little bit different than um, how DC operates as a whole, I think. Oftentimes there's uh, this big bureaucracy, you know, lobbyists and advocates and uh, public policy professionals sort of coming together in coalitions or whatever it might be and uh, leading these campaigns. Um, and after you know, they are successful or even unsuccessful, uh, the folks on the ground who are affected by these issues don't really know about their rights, um, don't really know about you know, X, Y, and C policy just, just uh, passed. And we, we sort of spin that on its head and say that actually the communities that are uh, the most affected by whatever you're trying to do, they should be at the forefront. Um, they, are the people who are in the best position to talk about their oppression or talk about these issues. Um, and so that, that's the, the approach that we always take, is really centering their leadership and um, having them be the charge of, of anything we do. Okay, so let's uh, maybe shift gears a little bit and talk some about the kind of political climate in the mm -hmm. era of Trump, right? Um, can you maybe talk some about how your, or, or 
maybe describe a little bit how your approach might have changed with the change of the federal government um, in power and how that might be impacting local communities here in DC? I think we've just gotten a lot more aggressive, you know? Um, like I said, because we are community-led and community-comprised, um, we listen to how the folks were organizing, how they feel. Um, and right now, they are deeply fearful of what's happening. And so that means they can't just wait, you know, for council or for the mayor to get their act together. They really want changes now. And so uh, we've been a little bit more uh, confrontational in our approach, and, and rightly so. We need our local politicians to be moving and to be listening to the needs of the community. Um, so I guess to make that maybe a little more concrete, uh, can shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, what it means to be a sanctuary city. Mm -hmm. um, and so I know that is something that is very, very much a hot button, but there's also a hot button issue. Um, but there's also not necessarily one definition of what it means to be a sanctuary city, mm -hmm. which kind of causes some confusion uh, for a lot of people. Um, so I guess, what, what would you want our listeners to know about what it means to be a sanctuary city? And then more importantly, why is it so important for DC specifically mm -hmm. to be a sanctuary city? Yeah, Washington DC, um, again, we don't have statehood, right? Um, <laughs> about 25% of our budget actually comes from the federal government. So if I were Trump, um, strategically, like it makes sense to mess with DC a little bit if I wanted to pick a target, uh, you know, whose money I could pull, whose sanctuary money I could pull. Um, so that's that's a very real fear for us. Um, but uh, sanctuary is just beyond, um, you know, our local uh, police and not working with ICE. It also, it's a question of like, do our people have access to affordable housing? You know, when our people are walking down the street, are they getting harassed by police? Or if they're trans, are they getting harassed by their own community members? Um, when they come home, are they uh, drinking water that's that's drinkable? Um, you know, it's, it's these broader things. Do they have access to, like, good union jobs? Do their kids have access to good quality public education? Um, you know, like, We've had like Airbnb come in and we've had like Uber, like capitalism constantly changing and it's removing a lot of these resources that our communities have had. Airbnb right now is like the, the uh, folks who um, are overlooking like these larger uh, housing complexes. They've, they're working to remove affordable housing essentially. Um, so it's, it's like a bigger thing is, is to be a true sanctuary city, you need all of these things to be in place for our communities. So it's, it's, a, it's a larger vision that we have. Paul, do you have anything to add about why it's important for D.C. to be a sanctuary city? I guess just because also in history, right? You know, it was the chocolate city, was the place where a lot of people came here and were free, right? Um, I was raised here in D.C. since I was nine years old. So like about almost 11 years. So I've seen that change of like our immigrant um, neighborhoods where a lot of them have been pushed out, right? A lot of places where there was a big Ethiopian community in Georgia Avenue, you don't see that as much as it used to be, you know? Or in Chinatown where you saw a lot of our Asian community, you don't see them as much anymore, right? So for me, I mean, DC has always been that diverse community where you know, yeah, it has been a very diverse community. So just seeing our communities being pushed out because of like affordable housing or just because 
the school is not, they're not able to attend the school that they wish to, you know, those little things. Mm -hmm. um, so right after the uh, election in November, I know there was a, a video that went viral a little bit uh, of Mayor Bowser outside uh, or at an event at the Mount Pleasant Library. Um, and you guys were at least uh, part of getting folks to come and, and demand DC uh, remain a strong sanctuary city. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about, about that moment and, and then how you feel like the mayor and the council have responded. Mm -hmm. Were you there at the action? Oh, okay, you weren't with me. Her sister was there and she was <laughs> on fire. <laughs> um, yeah, I, um, our, around that time, we, we felt like uh, Mayor Bowser hadn't really taken a strong stance on uh, DC being a sanctuary. If you looked at what was happening in, in some of the other cities, their mayors were like holding these mass press conferences, going in front of the media and like really aggressively declaring their status. Whereas Mayor Bowser put out about like a three sentence Twitter statement or like something on Facebook. <laughs> um, that was not enough for us. Um, again, especially considering the fact that we don't have statehood. So she was right in our neighborhood, a block away from um, our office, like us, our home. And uh, we, our, our community members just wanted to go and really approach her and, and talk to her about how they were feeling. And so that's what they did. While a sister Brenda was confronting her about uh, how unsatisfied she was with her statement, um, and yeah, Mayor Bowser kind of just flundered, which is which is surprising because you should be prepped, you should be prepared to um, talk to immigrants in this moment who are deeply afraid of what's happening. So that was just uh, just a portrayal of of how the community was feeling at the time. How do you feel the administration has responded? Um, locally, or do you feel like what you guys are, are doing, the kind of agitation work, <laughs> is it having the effect that you're hoping for? Yeah, I mean, I think we understand um, how complicated it is to be in a position where you know you're a public official in DC without um, with with the, with the federal government having such a grasp on the the works of, of our local government. Um, but at the same time, we, we haven't been very satisfied with, with what the politicians have been doing and saying. I mean, they've just been giving us lip service at the end of the day, declaring us a sanctuary from time to time, not as aggressively as we would like it to sound, but, um, but not doing anything. There hasn't been policies that have passed. There hasn't been like emergency legislation that we expected. Um, so it's been a lot of lip service without any real action. A lot of talking to talk, but not walking it. Mm -hmm. So, so I guess maybe let's just talk a little bit about the, um, the David Allen Morgan mm -hmm. uh, strike protests. Oh. I thought that was really, um, <laughs> I thought that was really inspiring and, and powerful to see to see the turnout, to see the restaurants um, closing down in solidarity, others donating their proceeds for the day. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe can you uh, tell us a little bit about what you guys did? as far as organizing, and then how you feel about the, um, the outcome of, of the action. Mm -hmm. So that was actually, it was kind of whack because we decided to do it the last minute. Mm -hmm. There's been, it, it wasn't started by MLove. There was a lot of talk over social media um, and just folks you know, sharing like memes and graphics around uh, this day without immigrants, but no like organization or anybody really bottom lining it, which is beautiful. <laughs> it's great that we've gotten to this moment where 
you know, the movement has suppressed our organizing, right? <laughs> um, uh, so literally the day before, the staff were like, okay, so there's this day without immigrants happening, but is there like a march? Like people are staying home, but how about the folks who want to take it to the streets? Um, so we got together, put our heads together, and within like the next 11 hours or so, we just organized this mass march. Um, we threw up a Facebook event and it just got so much traction. And it was really, it just spoke to the fact that, you know, immigrants are the backbone of the city. Black folk, immigrants, we, we create the city. And if, um, if we stopped going to work, if we uh, decided to pull our labor, we will shut the city down. Um, and so the folks who are speaking so ill and disrespecting our communities, it, they're, they're speaking this way, but, um, but they don't realize like, how much immigrants contribute to, to what is the United States of America. Do you think that it was, uh, it was successful that, that day? I guess within our community, for people like personally, it felt like successful for them, right? Just looking at the crowd, a very diverse crowd, right? And just looking that we were there for each other and that we didn't do this like just ourselves, like one person just decided to leave their job, you know? It was a lot of other people that did that and just walking down, marching down and looking at our businesses, right? That they were closed. So that's when, and like just looking at people hunking at us or mm -hmm. taking pictures or like just giving us those thumbs up on their way, right? And it felt empowerful as well for those that couldn't join us, you know, because they were threatened to like get fired or something for leaving their job, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I mean, I was doing this live thing and just me personally getting a lot of like, thank you for doing this, you know, people back home, or like saying stay safe or like, you know, those messages. Like you were you were live streaming it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it got shared so much. At some <laughs> point it, it crashed my um, Facebook. It wow. kept going live, but it, I don't, it had a lot of whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so just, I guess personally, if I felt that way, mm -hmm. I could have imagined how other people were feeling just as them yelling out or like chanting with us. And through the march, we had certain stops, right? So we would circle around our stops and people would make um, statements, right? Mm -hmm. And just looking at the crowd around, they were feeling it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, our, our march had a very local focus. Mm -hmm. um, so we started in La Casa in Mount Pleasant, um, an area of DC that is going through gentrification. So it was just like, um, we just filled Mount Pleasant with immigrants. And um, it was almost like a portrayal of like taking back our community in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then we went to Whole Foods, um, Peace Street Whole Foods, and people were a little confused why we were at Peace Street Whole Foods. <laughs> um, but it's because our workers committee has a campaign there. Um, one of our amazing, incredible worker leaders, Julia, had gotten fired from Whole Foods for just a complete BS reason. Um, and so we 
part of what MLAP has been doing is, is demanding that Julia get her job back. And so we, we stopped there. And the Whole Foods um, bosses were just very confused about why there were like a mass of people outside, <laughs> which is lovely to see. Um, and then we stopped by the council before we headed over to the White House. Um, so so it was, it was very local, which was really nice to see and something but you don't see. But then with the U Street as well. Oh, and U Street, uh, yes, exactly, yeah. Um, U Street being like a historically um, uh, African area, um, having a lot of like black restaurants there and being present, we, we talked a little bit about that history too. That's mm -hmm. great. So, do you guys think that that action will be a springboard for future events? Uh, kind of just like like a dry run for something bigger in the future. Of course, yeah. We we don't mobilize. You know, we we are organizing here. So this mm -hmm. is part of a, a larger strategy that we have going on at MLOF. Mm -hmm. That's great. So we will end uh, talking about what you guys are, your active campaigns, and, and what your demands are. Mm -hmm. uh, but first, I was hoping to talk a little bit. Um, about both of your kind of histories and background with activism and organizing. Um, that's something that we're trying to do with this podcast is to create kind of a roadmap for folks who may be listening who aren't used to political activism or getting out in the streets or being a part of an organization mm -hmm. and kind of just describe the different stories of people who, who make it happen, right? Um, so maybe if, if each of you can just kind of share your experience and your kind of road to where you are today with MLA. Yeah, I think we both came to this country around the same time, right? 2006. How old are you? Nine. Oh, okay, okay yes. yes. Yeah, around the same time. <laughs> what do you mean? Go ahead. Yeah, not the same year. <laughs> um, yeah, do you want to go first, Baba? Just well, talk about like how you got to this moment. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I came here from Mexico when I was nine years old, right? I didn't speak English. Um, I felt like I looked different than other people. It's just a different, very different environment. I started in Brismoreau Elementary Bilingual School, which is now close. It's a park, right? Brismoreau Park. That's where I started, and um, at first, just I guess I was the only. I, w I have two other classmates that didn't speak English, so we had this special ESL classroom in a closet, right? Mm -hmm. So just me dealing with, you know, experiences, right? Um, I guess. I got used to how schools work and how the city was. Um, that the point when I got into high school and I started coming into the Student and Action Research Team program, SMART, that's when I started realizing that everything that I normalized and since I got here, if I knew about my rights, if I knew how the school worked, if I knew if I knew all those systems, then maybe my education would have gone through a different route, right? Towards the end, when I was gonna graduate, that's when I started finding out certain classes that I needed in order to go to a good college, right? I started learning about the importance of SATs, of all those exams, but it was kind of weird to me that in my freshman year, I was put into ESL classrooms mm -hmm. just because I spoke a different language at home, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I didn't officially took any ESL classrooms before high school, right? So that kind of pushed me back into what I was learning because at some point in ninth grade, I found myself helping other ELL students instead of me being challenged, right? <laughs> Until my junior year where I started taking AP courses and I started realizing the different environments and education between being an ELL student, between 
being a mainstream student and being an AP student and just seeing what kind of students were in those settings, right? I had EL students being with diverse immigrant um, students, mainstream classes mostly with my African-American peers and then my AP classes with a lot of privileged um, white people, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. And so I felt the pressure. I felt that at some point I wasn't challenged, but when I got to it, I saw the difference, right? Um, on education and it went back to like, also my mom wasn't raised in this country. My mom didn't know how the system worked, right? So she couldn't prepare me well, but she laid that responsibility on my siblings and I, right? To find our way and to still be successful. So that's when me personally, I came to the conclusion like, it's not fair. Why are we not teaching our young people, right? Why are we not giving them that support that other kids already have? Right? And then just find learning about how funding goes to like schools mm -hmm. and like the boundaries and why this person can't go to that school. But why? If this school has more resources and why cannot they reach for those resources and be successful? So those are things that I guess when it comes to organizing, um, things that experiences that make you who you are and then you see the unfairness of it and it just makes you angry. Why couldn't you get that in the beginning, right? Your life could have been so much different. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's what got me to this point, you know? And also getting to the point of like applying to college. I'm undocumented, right? So what did that mean for me? My, um, my the high school I graduated from is Wilson, right? So it's supposed to be a very diverse, the most diverse um, high school in the area, I would say. But just the lack of um, the lack of support they had for an undocumented student, and just learning in my senior year that there were other peers like me that were undocumented that I didn't know about back in ninth, tenth, and eleventh grade, right? So I was also like struggling into like, okay, what are we gonna do now? And trying to not feel bad about not having documents to apply, right? Mm -hmm. So luckily, because I have um, DACA, which is a work permit for two years that they give um, for those who came here without papers at a young age, I was luck lucky to like at least get accepted into certain scholarships, right? Um, but then just the anger I felt about my other peers that didn't qualify for that program and couldn't get access to scholarships or to enroll into schools, yeah. you know? So I guess anger uh, that just triggers you to like make a change in those things. That, that's what has built me personally as a mm -hmm. person and why I've, I've, ever since I came into SMART and walked through those doors, I've been, I've been there and I've stayed there. And I spread, I spread the, the things, the experiences that I face to my peers that are recently arrived or that have been here and are lost yeah. um, because it's a struggle and it's, it takes a lot of hard work, and and it's just about understanding and not giving up at the same time, you know? I mean, you mentioned uh, DACA. Um, can you talk about how, as, as somebody who has benefited from, from that program and is potentially threatened by Trump administration executive actions and kind of the the rhetoric, if not the actions of the organization, how has that impacted you personally? Like psychologically or just socially yeah. or whatever? So, um, you know, I'm a person that puts myself goals, right? If I can't get this, I'll find the, another path of getting 
there without staying back or, you know? Um, so getting back in the beginning was a big, a great thing for me. Um, I was able to like get a job, you know, um, to get scholarships, to go to school and just like get an idea as well, you know? And um, it, it built that confidence in me, just walking and feeling more safe, traveling to other states. Mm -hmm. um, but to this point now, as in DACA can be something that could potentially get threatened, right? Or be taken away. Um, it just frustrates me as well because my goal is to potentially become a nurse, right? Or work in the medical mm -hmm. area. So um, in order for you to work in a hospital, you need to have a social security number, right? So already I got certified as a nurse assistant and for me to work there in the social, right? Mm -hmm. If it were to take, be taken away, how would I be able to work in this feel that I want to work in, right? Yeah. So like those things are just things that, yeah, frustrate me. But at the same time, it's like, I need to do something for my part, for my community to have each other's back. And how can we put that pressure to, and that's what it means, like also like, how do we keep our city sanctuary, our people from the city sanctuary, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So how about you? You're journey to being yes my journey <laughs> um yeah i think my story is actually very similar to Paula too and i feel like a lot of folks who come here at a young age as an immigrant um share a similar story i grew up in a village in turkey um off of the coast of the black sea and yeah I, it was a very poor village um you know t we had tea plantations everywhere tea is one of our biggest exports um biggest source of labor too. So I kind of grew up just watching everyone in my family like go up and down mountains carrying these like heavy, heavy uh, tea loads on their backs, like having hunchbacks as they got older. And uh, my parents came here like the typical, you know, searching for a better life kind of narrative. Um, I came here with my mom when I was fairly young and also struggled very much getting through the, the school system. I didn't know a word in English either. And yeah, just I, my mom is a, she cleans houses for a living. She also works at a factory. My dad is a truck driver. So very much from like a working class, I've been in the restaurant industry most of my life. Um, and when I first in my family to, to go to college, and when I came to college, it was actually around the height of the Occupy movement, if you want to call it that. <laughs> um, and you know, there's a lot of criticisms of Occupy, but at the end of the day, I actually met a lot of really amazing people who had like uh, different politics than I did. And I wasn't very politicized at the time either, but through um, meeting some of those folks and really understanding their style of thinking, that really helped like radicalize me. And it was, it took some time. It wasn't like, you know, one moment or, or anything. Um, but how I came to organizing, I just, I've always been like a bit of a troublemaker, <laughs> I guess. Um, like I've always been someone who just um, uh, really just analyzed everything and thought critically about things. Um, so when I found out that you could cause trouble for, uh, for fun and like get paid for it <laughs> potentially, I was like, this is great, you know? So I moved from like being more reactionary to like being strategic and thinking it through a little bit more. Um, and I, I came across some really great mentors along the way here in DC locally, Movement Matters. And they're 
they're an amazing duo, David and Marta. They, they're amazing mentors here. Um, always like helping us think through some of these things. Um, they're two like long time, incredible organizers. Um, so that's been, that's a little bit of my journey. And so um, just the last question, if you were gonna give a call to action to any of the listeners, uh, what, what would it be? I, mean, I would say just get involved, <laughs> you know? Um, especially in DC, there are a lot of organizations and groups that are doing organizing. Um, and just, just get involved, take it to the streets. Um, these like mass marches are, are very inspiring to us to see, we gotta resist. Um, now more than ever, you know, in this age of like unmasked fascism, um, we have to, to, to resist, but also like know our place exactly, um, and making sure we're not taking up the space that should belong to other people. And make sure, especially for many languages own voice, this is one of our core values, is make sure the folks who are the most affected are at the forefront of the work that you are doing and that you're not, you know, taking over uh, that space that should belong to them. That's, that's really critical. Um, in a city that's like, that's has a condo being built like every week, um, you know, we want to make sure that long-time uh, immigrants, especially, are leading the charge uh, for the work that we do. Yeah, what do you think? You can say some. How, no, how yeah. are you feeling? What do you want to say to people? <laughs> yeah, to get involved, most like get do something. You know, like people just sit there, watch the news, and see what's happening. But if there's something that you can do on your side, go for it. All right, thank you for listening. Uh, that was our show for today. Um, I know we learned a lot, and we hope that you did as well, about the state of immigrant rights in D.C. and why it's so important to keep the district a sanctuary city. Um, it was really great getting to know some of the people and organizations building the power needed to keep D.C. a sanctuary for all people. Um, and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, so our conversation with Yasmin and Paolo went on a little bit longer. And we just didn't, uh, there was just, uh, it was too long to include all in uh, the segment you just heard. So we will be producing, there's going to be a second little mini episode coming out later on this bonus week. Ep. Yeah, bonus episode <laughs> uh, with just the, uh, with the specific demands that M Love is looking to uh, get from, <clears throat> to get from the city administration. Yep. Yeah, they have six specific points. We'll also include um, those in our show notes. So be on the lookout for that. And, and the bonus episode coming out soon. Yeah, and I think I just want to take a second to say that this would be, you know, immigrant rights is a great way for people to engage locally and resist what I consider to be really cruel, invasive policies by the federal government. It's, you know, if you can take the time to sit down and craft a post on Twitter, you know, you can take a few minutes to, you know, it's, it's not that much farther to find the, a local group like MLove and go help them out. They need your help. They need pens. They need pencils. They need people mm -hmm. to knock on doors. You know, the ACLU has a lot of money already. Yeah. <laughs> they get a lot of help. They get a lot of attention. They Which get a great. lot of love. But, uh, you know. support our local groups, too. But uh, you can get engaged locally, locally to fight back against, uh, you know, cruel government overreach. Yeah. So. If you got some money, donate it. If you have some time, go use it. Uh, if you have some skills, find somebody that you can help out. Um, Check them out at mlovedc.org. Uh, they have a lot of opportunities um, for you to do good work right here in town. Um, okay, so this is time where you got to say some thank yous. So thank you to Yasmin, Paula, and Selena for talking to us. Uh, thanks to Anupam Chakravarti for our logo and Corey Benevente for our intro music. Yep, and thank you to Flavor Wasters for our local music interlude. Hi, Jody.
so yeah, so before, before we go away, I want you to do one more call to action. Please follow us on Twitter. We are at square one show. That's square the word, one the number, show the word. Uh, we're making it easy on you. Uh, we're also on Medium. You can follow us at medium.com slash square one. Uh, again, the number one. Um, you can also find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, yeah, please follow us. Uh, leave a rating and review on iTunes if you can. Uh, We'd love you for it, please. Yes, please. And uh, thank you so much. Yep, see you next time. Bye.